Let me just begin here by saying how much I sincerely appreciate all of the enormous interest in my Samson discussion, and more recently in these discussions on Homer's Odyssey. Of all of my various discussions, whether it's those pertaining to my series on Thus Spoke Zarathustra, or whether it's those pertaining to the Nihilism and Technology series, these discussions, previously with the Samson discussion, and now especially with this Homer discussion, have been very wildly successful, and I sincerely appreciate that. And so if you enjoy listening to these, I really encourage you to take a look at the series on my website, Athens Corner, that's for fathers and sons. It's that series, the Fathers and Sons series, that I'm doing all of these for. And there's so very much of these there on my website versus what is just here. And so if you enjoy these, I really encourage you to go there and take a look. Simply go to Athens Corner and click on the category for Fathers and Sons. In our previous discussion, which is to say our first discussion on Homer's Odyssey, we covered a little over the first hundred lines in the Odyssey. And what we found that comes tumbling out is really nothing less than everything. And what I mean by that is everything that we mean when we use these words, the beautiful, the good, and the just. But to get down to the specifics, what we found in particular was that there is confusion. There's confusion among the gods, and there's also confusion among men. And all of this centers around the fact that Odysseus has not had his homecoming at the time in which the gods themselves had initially planned for his homecoming. And when we first meet Zeus in the text, Zeus himself is complaining that men blame the gods for things that are more properly blamed on man himself. But then we immediately found out that that also applies to the gods, because Athena blames Zeus. She wants Odysseus to have his homecoming. And Zeus agrees and invites all the gods to put together a second plan in which Odysseus can have his homecoming. But immediately after that, Athena says, okay, here's what I'm going to do, and then she proceeds to do it. And that's how we first meet Odysseus's son, Telemachus. But the important thing for us is that Zeus had invited all of the gods to put together a plan, and Athena has initiated her own plan. So it might very well be the case that we end up with competing plans, which is to say Zeus has something in mind, Athena might have something different in mind, and these things might come to crossroads. And what we saw come tumbling out of all that was this question of the understanding of justice itself. Not simply justice among men, but justice in its highest or purest form among the gods. But because we spent so much time on that in the previous discussion, I won't reinvent the wheel here. I'll simply say the following. Our theme in this entire series is about fathers and sons, which is to say the proper ordering within the family itself and how that ordering gets handed down from father to son, which is to say from generation to generation. Zeus himself is the one who initially introduces this for us in this text. When he laments that men blame the gods for things which are more properly attributed to the fault of man himself, he points to Aegisthus, because Aegisthus is the one who has seduced Agamemnon's wife while Agamemnon has been off at Troy. And Aegisthus does this despite being warned explicitly against it by the gods themselves. And it's Agamemnon's son, Orestes, who executes justice on behalf of his father, Agamemnon, by slaying not only Aegisthus, but also his own mother, Agamemnon's wife. 
So in a single stroke, what we have is not only an example of a failed homecoming, but also an example of what happens when the proper ordering within the family breaks down. And we have to keep in mind that all of this is being said by Zeus in front of his own family. And Athena's behavior indicates that that ordering among Zeus's own family is in jeopardy. Athena does not wait for Zeus's approval regarding her own plan. She simply says what it's going to be, and then she begins to implement it. So what we can say is that not only is the proper ordering within the family definitive of man himself, certainly within homecomings, but it's also definitive of the divine. And so when you consider both of those, what you conclude is that the proper ordering within the family is definitive of this thing we call life itself, whether one is talking about the mortal or the immortal. And a more provocative way to state that would be something like the following. Life itself is a task, and that task is fundamentally defined by establishing and maintaining the proper ordering within not only the family structure, but more broadly, a people. And also remember, Homer is the one who's telling us all this through the inspiration of the divine muse. He asked the muse to begin wherever she wanted to, and she chose to begin precisely with Zeus's lamentation, from which all of this comes tumbling out. And so what we can say about the text at this point is that all indications suggest that the task for us as thoughtful readers is to recognize the way in which establishing and preserving ordering of the family structure is everything. And in fact, it might very well be the case that the reason the muse begins in the middle of things, and in particular, the very things that lead into the beginning of the text with Telemachus means that the Odyssey itself is not so much primarily about Odysseus as it is about Telemachus. Or to state that a little more provocatively, but I think helpfully, the text itself is structured in such a way that it reveals the story of any man, and in particular any great man, is of necessity the story of that man's sons which is to say the handing down of the teachings of the father to the son define the father. But that's a claim that we'll have to assess after having read the entirety of the text. And so be that as it may, at this point, it's immediately here where Telemachus, Odysseus's son, strides onto the stage. Zeus, according to the divine muse, speaking through Homer, has just said, but come, all of us here put heads together now and will work out his journey home so Odysseus can return. Lord Poseidon, I trust, will let his anger go. How can he stand his ground against the will of all the gods at once, he being one god alone? And then this response by Athena is where we ended things last time. Her eyes flashing bright, exulted, Father, son of Kronos, our high and mighty king, if now it really pleases the blissful gods that wise Odysseus shall return, let us dispatch the guide and giant killer, Hermes, down to the island of Ogygia, down to announce at once to the nymph with lovely braids our fixed decree. Odysseus journeys home, the exile must return, while I myself go down to Ithaca, rouse his son to a braver pitch, inspire his heart with courage, to summon the flowing-haired Achaeans to full assembly, to speak his mind to all those suitors, slaughtering on and on his droves of sheep, 
and shambling longhorn cattle. Next, I will send him off to Sparta and Sandy Pylos, there to learn of his dear father's journey home. Perhaps he will hear some news and make his name throughout the mortal world. Okay, so let's be very clear now about Athena's plan that she herself is going to execute with regard to Odysseus' son, Telemachus. As it initially appears here, it has two parts. First, she herself is going to inspire courage in Odysseus' son, Telemachus, in order that he may summon an assembly in which he can publicly speak his grievances against all the suitors who are pursuing his mother. Presumably, Odysseus is dead, and so these suitors have come to Odysseus's home in the hopes of making Odysseus's wife, Penelope, their wife, and in taking her as their wife, whoever it is that she chooses, becomes the rightful king of Ithaca. And so part one of Athena's plan, inspire Telemachus to have the courage to call a full assembly in which he can speak his grievances against these men. The second part of Athena's plan is to have Telemachus go on his own journey. She wants him to go to Sparta and to Pylos in order to learn anything that he can about his father, Odysseus. Now we're going to have quite a bit to say about both parts of Athena's plan when she's discussing it with Telemachus himself. But for now, let me say just the following. If Odysseus's wife is to marry one of the suitors, that suitor, as having replaced Odysseus, has the right of rule over Ithaca. That right would seem to be natural, because Odysseus was king, presumably he's dead, and so whoever replaces Odysseus would naturally take over rule as king. However, Odysseus has a son, Telemachus, and so the natural right of inheritance makes Telemachus king of Ithaca. So the rights that are working at cross-purposes here are the rights that come along on the one hand with marriage and the rights that come along on the other hand of inheritance from father to son. So which of these is more natural? Now, as thoughtful readers, we need to take a moment here and talk about this word nature, or what amounts to the same thing, its adjectival form of natural. The Greek word for it is phusis. That's where we get our word physics from. The first occurrence of that word ever is going to happen in this text. Now, I have entire discussions about this in the Technology and Nihilism series on my website, so I'm not going to reinvent the wheel here. But let me simply say it's going to occur at one of the most important moments in the text, and in fact in all of Western literature period, when Odysseus has to save his men. The god Hermes is going to meet Odysseus on his way to save the men, and provide Odysseus with what he needs to save his men. And that's going to be the discovery of nature. But let's just simply be aware of that and set it aside for the moment with full recognition of how definitive that word, nature, has been for everything in the Western tradition as it has come down to us in the form of the phrases we recognize as natural right, natural law, because natural right in particular is the lens through which we, much later in time, looking back and reading this now, are able to get a bearing of these tensions and perhaps even conflicts that were seen occur on Ithaca. And on the very particular point of natural right, 
let me say the following. And when we say right, we simply mean justice. So to speak of natural right is to speak of natural justice. But you see that phrasing it that way immediately reveals the difficulty. Natural right is not so much a phrase as it is, in fact, a question. And if we were simply asking what justice is, that's one thing. But what happens when you put the word natural in front of it as an adjective? In other words, what is justice by nature? And it's on this point where philosophy and political philosophy become the same thing. Now, I have entire discussions on this thing called nature, and those discussions are in my Technology and Nihilism series. So again, I won't reinvent the wheel here, but I'll simply point out that within the Greek word phusis for nature is the word phuo, which means to grow. So whatever this thing natural justice is, or justice by nature, it means justice that in some way grows. And that's to say justice that somehow has its own inner principle, and in particular a principle of motion for growth. To say that something is natural is to say that something somehow inherently grows of its own accord. It doesn't require any kind of outside source. So our question here is whether the right of marriage grows in a way that is supervenient to the right of inheritance. And the right of inheritance with regard to Telemachus on this point quite literally concerns the growth of Telemachus. And it's that element of growth that unites part one and part two of Athena's plan. The growth of Telemachus from adolescent into a man, and not just any man, but Odysseus's son, and so into a king, requires, on the one hand, the courage to rule. And on the other hand, it requires knowledge of his father over and above the knowledge he's gained while in adolescence at home in Ithaca. That knowledge is insufficient. And it's helpful to phrase it like this. Hearsay is simply not knowledge. Knowledge as such must somehow inherently require a very strong element of experience. And this is something that all of us should absolutely recognize from our own lives. People, and in particular young people, but by no means simply limited to young people, adults are every bit as guilty of this, believe that they know something very often without having experienced it. And this is definitive of hearsay. In fact, we're going to see this play out in one of the most famous scenes in this text. Recall from the Iliad, Achilles says that he has a choice. He can either take vengeance upon Hector and have a short life of enormous glory, or he can sail home early from Troy and have a long life, but there will be no associated greatness of glory to it. And without hesitation, he chooses the short life of great glory. But in this text, Odysseus is going to flatly journey down to Hades, and we're going to find out that Achilles has enormous regret over his choice. In other words, Achilles thought he knew what was at stake in both possibilities that he could choose from, but he did not have the experience of either. There was something fundamentally missing in his own education up to that point. Now, of course, it's much more complicated than that and requires nothing less than an entire reading of the Iliad to understand all the complexities involved. But the point remains, knowledge lacking experience 
can't even be properly said to be knowledge. And so what this means for Telemachus with regard to part two of Athena's plan for him is that hearsay is so problematic for young men, or in our case, for an adolescent, that it is literally unbecoming of a man. That's to say that for Telemachus to remain within the realm of only hearsay is for him to forever remain an adolescent, which is to say not a man. And I think it's just about impossible to overstate the importance of this because it is something that never leaves us. In the exact same way that an adolescent has to leave behind hearsay or gossip in order to grow into a man, grown men who traffic in gossip flatly regress back to adolescence. And so more broadly, we can say this, any life that is imbued or suffused with hearsay and gossip is flatly unmanly. It is improper to the life of man as man to have very much at all to do with hearsay and gossip. The proper life of man is the life in which knowledge is based upon experience. Now that said, let me simply point out that in traveling to Sparta, Athena is sending Telemachus to Menelaus, and Menelaus is Agamemnon's brother. And so once again, we see that Aegisthus looms on the horizon. And for us, with regard to Telemachus here and Athena's plan, what that means is that the example of Orestes looms on the horizon. And that leads us directly into the question of the status of Telemachus, as he, Telemachus, understands himself. And the way that that problem emerges as we first meet Telemachus is the way in which we simply have to ask ourselves, in Ithaca, who rules? Odysseus was the king, but he's been gone. So who has been ruling in his place? And this is directly related to part two. Telemachus is to learn of his father. And the reason that this is necessary is because while it is true that the Trojan War lasted for 10 years, we have to ask ourselves how much time has passed in which Odysseus has not returned. As we're going to find out shortly, that too has been 10 years. It has been 20 years since Telemachus has had any opportunity to even see his father. And so just imagine all that could have gone wrong and perhaps has gone wrong in Ithaca over those past 20 years. Who has been ruling? And just imagine having neither seen or spoken with your father in 20 years. In fact, has Telemachus ever spoken with his father? Because he could very well be 19, born a year after Odysseus has already left. And so that's the enormity of what's at stake here as we're going to meet Telemachus when Athena journeys down to him. And so continuing, the divine muse, who again is speaking through Homer, says the following, So Athena vowed, and under her feet she fastened the supple sandals, ever glowing gold, that wing her over the waves and boundless earth with the rush of gusting winds. She seized her rugged spear, tipped with a bronze point, weighted, heavy, the massive shaft she wields to break the lines of heroes the mighty father's daughter storms against. And down she swept from Olympus's craggy peaks and lit on Ithaca, standing tall at Odysseus's gates, the threshold of his court. Gripping her bronze spear, she looked for all the world like a stranger now, like Mentes, lord of the Taphians, 
There at the gates, she found the swaggering suitors, just then amusing themselves with rolling dice before the doors, lounging on hides of oxen they had killed themselves. All the while, heralds and brisk attendants bustled round them, some of the mixing bowls, mulling wine and water, others wiping the tables down with sopping sponges, setting them out in place. Still other servants jointed and carved the great sides of meat. First to see her by far was Prince Telemachus, sitting among the suitors, his heart obsessed with grief. He could almost see his magnificent father, here, in the mind's eye. If only he might drop down from the clouds and drive these suitors all in a rout throughout the halls and regain his pride of place and rule his own domains. Okay, so Athena has arrived in Ithaca and she's arrived at the gates of Odysseus's home. She has taken on the guise of Mentes, the lord of the Tephians, and she's standing at the gates of Odysseus's home. And we get to see what 20 years of Odysseus being gone has done. Odysseus's home is filled with men seeking to replace Odysseus as Penelope's husband. Now let's not forget, it was Athena who had zero sympathy for Aegisthus, and Aegisthus had seduced Agamemnon's wife. And here she is, standing at the gates of Odysseus's home, witnessing all of these men who are competing to seduce Odysseus's wife. And what's even more egregious about the sight that she sees is the way in which all of these suitors are being attended to by Odysseus's servants, and it's Telemachus himself who has to attend to the door. Twenty years have resulted in Telemachus becoming a doorman. Athena is witnessing Odysseus's own son in the role of doorman at his own home, while his own servants are attending to the very people who are seeking to seduce Odysseus's wife. And Athena has literally just told her own father that all men who behave in the way Aegisthus behaved should be mercilessly murdered in the exact same way that Agamemnon's son, Orestes, had murdered Aegisthus. In other words, you can only imagine that as Athena is taking in this sight, she wants to bring it about that Telemachus mercilessly slaughter every single one of these people. Now something else that we have to point out here is that Orestes did more than just kill Aegisthus. He also slaughtered his mother for allowing it to happen. And Athena knows this, and so we simply have to keep that in our minds as we go through here. In exacting justice for what has become of his home, we have to ask ourselves, how complicit has Odysseus's wife, Penelope, been in all of this? And so we simply leave a question mark over that now and keep an eye on it going forward. And so all of this now brings us to Telemachus. As we meet Telemachus, he's grief-stricken, and he's imagining how wonderful it would be if Odysseus were to simply show up out of nowhere and slaughter everyone in sight. But you see in that the way in which Telemachus is still an adolescent. He hasn't become a man in the 20 years that have gone by. He's wanting his father to do the very gruesome but absolutely necessary work that at this point, after 20 years, is the responsibility of Telemachus. 
And so the fact that he's grief-stricken reveals his adolescence. Grief is simply not the proper response to the facts on the ground. Telemachus needs to unknot his stomach and begin imagining that he himself is the one that's going to slaughter every single last one of these people. And another way to say that is that in the absence of a father, a son is incapable of becoming a man, even and especially under the best circumstances in which one's mother is of the caliber of Odysseus's wife, Penelope. Sons need their fathers. There's simply no way around it. And in fact, we're going to see very quickly that very desire of a son to have a father, which is to say the way in which Telemachus is going to leap at the opportunity to have someone fill in that role of father that has been left empty for 20 years and possibly the entirety of Telemachus's life. And one last thing that I want to add here before we move on is the activity of the imagining in which we meet Telemachus. This goes back to that earlier discussion I had about the role of Aristotle's poetics for why the great books are always so important for us. As I elaborated in that earlier discussion, one of the most important elements of a poem for Aristotle is its beginning, its middle, and its end. These things seem to be constitutive of how man thinks, which is to say they reflect the role of temporality in mind. And what I mean by that is this, in any attempt to simply understand ourselves at any level, we imagine in the mind's eye our situation as it presently is and how it has come to be from our past, while at the same time projecting whatever possibilities we envision for ourselves from those things into the future. Those are the elements of beginning, middle, and end in our thought as such. And that's why for Aristotle these things are so important for a good poem, because that's how the audience will be able to relate to the poem. Another way to phrase this is that in poetry, just like in thinking itself, there's an inherent desire for wholeness, for unity. And we understand wholeness or unity in terms of beginning, middle, and end. And the great books come into play precisely because on our own, we might not necessarily have the best understanding or familiarity with examples of greatness from which we use the images to construct our beginning, middle, and end. So, for example, looking back at my Samson discussion, the story of Samson itself resonates so well with people because we're drawn towards strength, and especially strength amid failure for redemption. And so just as how we all love to see comebacks in athletics, we especially love to see comebacks in life, particularly for those dear to us, and also, and especially, for ourselves, because we all experience failure, and very often, great failure. And in those moments of failure, we need examples or images to draw from in order to construct the all-important possibilities for our ending based upon where we have come from and where we are. Telemachus has this in the figure of his father, Odysseus. His whole life, he's been told how great Odysseus is. And so it's that image of Odysseus that he's using amid what seems to be an enormous failure 
of where he is presently from the greatness of his origins. And so he's using that image of greatness, namely his father Odysseus, and projecting it into a hoped-for future or ending to the miseries of his current situation. And so what's amazing about this scene is that the text is self-reflective. Homer is providing us with a case study of human greatness that we can all draw from when such greatness is lacking in our own lives. That's the great power of the great books. And it's definitive of why I even decided to do this series of providing a means through which fathers could share in the direct teaching of their own sons with the great books. And we can even push this element of reflexivity in the text a little bit further to add some strength to that earlier claim that I made regarding the possibility that the role of Telemachus in the Odyssey is just as definitive, if not primary, to the role of Odysseus himself. We've already seen how the text is so thoroughly imbued with emphasizing the proper relationship between fathers and sons, which is to say the proper ordering of the very family structure itself. That relationship between fathers and sons can be understood by the way in which thinking is constituted by the construction of these beginnings, middles, and ends through images projected into the future from where we are and how we've gotten there. A father understands his son as his own ending, but if the handing down of the way in which the good life is to be understood from the father to the son is disrupted or simply not even existent or defective, the son will not understand himself as his father's ending. He will understand himself as his own beginning, or perhaps not fundamentally defined by his father. And so in that very fragile relationship, we immediately see what the question is. Our task is to find out what's the best way in order to turn the father's ending into, and smoothly into, not simply the son's understanding of his own beginning, but also the son's understanding of his ending. That is what constitutes a successful tradition within a family, and on an even larger level, of a people. This, and precisely this, is how it is that the answer to the question of what is the good life attains stability through the generations of man, whether one is talking about the biblical tradition or the tradition of the philosophical virtues. And so we can phrase that even more provocatively. We can say that that, the smoothing over of the ending of the father into the beginning, and in fact the son's understanding of his own ending, defines this thing that we call education. Certainly education in its most important and significant respect. And the last thing I'll say on this before moving on is that one of the most important themes in all of the great books of the Western tradition concerns the way in which there's something natural to man in his youth that always seeks to rebel from the traditions or the conventions of his father, of his people. And so this aspect of what we've got our finger on the pulse of with Telemachus imagining his father slaughtering all of these suitors unfolds into nothing less than one of the most important themes in all of Western great literature. And as we've met it here in the text with Telemachus, his proper education 
in order to simply become a man for whom his father will be proud consists in the ability to get Telemachus from imagining his father doing the necessary work into knowing and believing that that work can be done by himself, that he can do it, and that in so doing it, he rises to the expectations that his father, Odysseus, would and should have for him. Because as I've already mentioned regarding what Athena has just said to her father about Aegisthus and all people like him, she, Athena, surely has those expectations for Telemachus. And so continuing, the muse, speaking through Homer, says the following, Daydreaming in that way, so he sat among the suitors. He glimpsed Athena now, and straight to the porch he went, mortified that a guest might still be standing at the doors. Pausing beside her there, he clasped her right hand and relieving her at once of her long bronze spear, meeting her with these winged words, Greeting, stranger. Here in our house you'll find a royal welcome. Have supper first, then tell us what you need. He led the way, and Pallas Athena followed. Once in the high-roofed hall, he took her lance and fixed it firm in a burnished rack against a sturdy pillar. There, where row on row of Odysseus's spears stood stacked and waiting, then he escorted her to a high, elaborate chair of honor. Over it draped a cloth, and here he placed his guest with a stool to rest her feet. But for himself, he drew up a low reclining chair beside her clear from the mob of suitors, concerned that his guest would be offended by their uproar. What's more, he hoped to ask him about his long-lost father. A maid brought water soon in a graceful golden pitcher, and over a silver basin tipped it out so they might rinse their hands. A housekeeper brought on bread to serve them, appetizers aplenty to lavish her with bounty. A carver lifted planters of meat towards them, meats of every sort, and set beside them golden cups, and time and again a servant came around and poured them wine. But now the suitors trooped in with all their swagger and took their seats on low and high-backed chairs. Heralds poured water over their hands for rinsing. Serving maids brought bread heaped high in trays, and the young men brimmed the mixing bowls with wine. They reached out for the good things that lay at hand, and when they'd put aside desire for food and drink, the suitors set their minds on other pleasures song and dance, all that crowns a feast. A herald placed an ornate lyre in Phemius's hands, the bard who always performed among them there, though they forced the man to sing. And no sooner had he struck up his rousing song than Telemachus, head close to Athena's sparkling eyes, spoke low to his guest so no one else could hear. Okay, so now before we get into what Telemachus and Athena say to each other, it's worth pointing out the following about that scene. What we effectively have is a situation of civil war within the home of Odysseus. And that certainly does not bode well for Ithaca at large because remember, Odysseus is the king. And so any situation of chaos, certainly of civil war, within the king's home is going to be reflective throughout the land itself. On the one hand, you have Telemachus, who's been reduced to a doorman but he's not entirely forgotten by his own staff. They still accord him a certain amount of honors that belong to him within the house. But the most important honor concerning how he himself is understood by outsiders is simply non-existent. And then you have the suitors. An outsider looking in would think that the home belongs to the suitors because they burst in very loudly, 
and all the servants rush to cater to them, and they've even forced a poet, Phemius, to perform for them as they feast on all of this food that belongs to Telemachus. Presumably the hunting that they've been doing all day is of Telemachus's own livestock, so they're quite literally eating him out of house and home. And Telemachus goes out of his way to sit with Athena disguised as Mentes, far enough away from the mob of the suitors, so that he can't be overheard by them. In other words, the ordering within the household is completely inverted. The guests rule, while the man of the house, which should be Telemachus after these twenty years in the absence of Odysseus, has to slink away from them and whisper so that he's not overheard by them. So you have a house divided into two camps. And notice the way in which the muse speaking through Homer referred to Odysseus's spears when Telemachus placed Athena's spear among them. We were told that they lay in wait. And that's a very ominous statement because what that means is that this house divided into two camps is in fact a house divided into two armed camps. War is looming, but the suitors certainly don't see that. They're simply living the life of pleasure, as presented in the image of the lyre that's played as Phemius recites his songs. But what they don't have in mind is that the complement to the lyre is the bow. And we know this from the Iliad, because remember when Achilles himself steps away from the battlefield in protest, we see him playing the lyre. And just as the way in which the lyre is representative of man when he's not at war, its complement of the bow is absolutely representative of man at war. The suitors have forgotten this. Their hubris is that while they themselves hunt on Telemachus's own land, which is to say Odysseus's own land, it doesn't occur to them that such hubris might result in they being the ones who are hunted on that same land. And so with that in mind, now let's turn to the conversation that takes place between Athena and Telemachus. And remember, Telemachus has just leaned in closely to start speaking to Athena in order that the suitors don't hear them. And he says the following, Dear stranger, would you be shocked by what I say? Look at them over there. Not a care in the world. Just liars and tunes. It's easy for them, all right. They feed on another's goods and get off with impunity. A man whose white bones lie strewn in the rain somewhere, rotting away on land or rolling down the ocean's salty swells. That man, if they caught sight of him here in Ithaca, they'd all immediately pray to be faster on their feet than richer in bars of gold and heavy robes. But now, no use. He's died a wretched death. No comforts left for us. Not even if someone, somewhere, says he's coming home. The day of his return will never dawn. Enough. Tell me about yourself now, point by point. Who are you? Where are you from? Your city? Your parents? What sort of vessel brought you? Why did the sailors land you here in Ithaca? Who did they say they are? I hardly think you came this way on foot. And tell me this for a fact. I need to know. Is this your first time here? Or are you a friend of father's? A guest from the old days? Once, crowds of other men would come to our house on visits. Visitor that he was when he walked among the living. And now Athena, her eyes glinting. My whole story, of course. I'll tell it to you point by point. Wise old Anchialus was my father. My own name is Mentes, lord of the Taphian men who love their oars. And here I've come, just now, with ship and crew. 
sailing the wine-dark sea to foreign ports of call, to Tamiz, out for bronze. Our ship lies moored off farmlands far from town. As for the ties between your father and myself, we've been friends forever, I'm proud to say, and he would bear me out if you went and questioned old Laertes. He, I gather, no longer ventures into town, but lives a life of hardship all to himself, off on his farmstead with an aged servant woman who tends him well who gives him food and drink when weariness has taken hold of his withered limbs from hauling himself along the vineyard's steep slopes. And now I've come. And why? I heard that he was back. Your father, that is. But no, the gods thwart his passage. Yet I tell you, great Odysseus is not dead. He's still alive somewhere in this wide world, held captive, out at sea, on a wave-washed island, and hard men, savages, somehow hold him back against his will. Wait, I'll make you a prophecy. One the immortal gods have planted in my mind. It will come true, I think, though I'm hardly a seer or know the flights of birds. He won't be gone long from the native land he loves, not even if iron shackles bind your father down. He's plotting a way to journey home at last. He's never at a loss. But come, please, tell me about yourself now, point by point. You're truly Odysseus's son? You've sprung up so. Uncanny resemblance. The head and the fine eyes. I see him now. How often we used to meet in the old days before he embarked for Troy, where other Argive captains, all the best men, sailed in the long curved ships. From then to this very day, I've not set eyes on Odysseus or he on me. Now before we get to Telemachus's response, let's quickly assess some of the significant things that have just transpired. Athena herself is disguised as Mentes, and Telemachus has told her that he's given up hope in the possibility that his father Odysseus is still alive regardless of whatever visitors might have to say about him. But in saying that, Telemachus has revealed that Odysseus was always a visitor of other peoples. So why has not Telemachus visited other people? Again, his adolescence is showing. But the fact remains, he wants to learn about his father. And so it's important for him to know if this is the first time Mentes has visited Ithaca. And if not, what can she tell him about his father from her previous visits? This would also seem to indicate that in the long time that has passed since Odysseus went off to Troy, Ithaca has remained secluded. And the fact that the disorder taking place within Odysseus's home has not come to a conclusion in all that time would seem to indicate that when Odysseus left, he had done a good job of ensuring stability. In other words, something about Odysseus's rule was very significant and very effective. Now, Athena as Mentes is quite coy, because she goes out of her way to say that her ship that she arrived in is very far from town. In other words, the truth that she is not Mentes cannot be found out very quickly. And the significance of what she says is twofold. First, she brings up Laertes. Laertes is Odysseus's father. So Laertes was previously the king of Ithaca. But for reasons unknown, He's living a life of isolation on his own farm with great toil. And so the immediate question is, what has transpired such that Laertes is isolated, toiling away on a farm while his son Odysseus was king? And remember, we were just speaking about the issue of the natural right of inheritance. And so what could possibly be the circumstances in which Odysseus takes over as king prematurely from his father Laertes such that Laertes ends up slaving away on his own farm in great isolation. We don't have an answer for that, 
and so we need to just place a question mark over it and keep our eye on it. Athena as Mentes then proceeds to do exactly what Telemachus says he won't believe of anyone, namely Athena as Mentes prophecies that Odysseus will be home soon. But in doing so, she also reminds Telemachus of Odysseus's greatness. He's never at a loss, she says. And then the second very significant thing that Athena as Mentes does is she broaches the significance of how long Odysseus has been gone. It's going to turn out that it's 20 years. 10 years at Troy, then 10 years just disappeared. Nobody knows. But that's not been said yet. We just know that he's been gone for a long time. And in fact, everyone else from Troy who lived is already home. And Athena as Mentes asks Telemachus, are you really Odysseus's son? And she's preemptive in the way she asks it because she says, I see in you an uncanny resemblance. But the question of Telemachus as truly being Odysseus's son is itself twofold. On the one hand, there's the biological status of, is he in fact born of the parents, Odysseus and Penelope? And the physical resemblance of Telemachus to Odysseus, according to Athena as Mentes, says that yes, he is. And that would be extremely important for a son who has no memory of his father. But on the other hand, there are many sons who don't live up to the expectations of their fathers. And in that regard, the son doesn't seem to be of the father. And so this speaks to the becoming of a man of Telemachus, and in particular, a man that his father, Odysseus, would be proud to call his son. In other words, Telemachus needs to strive for greatness and in particular the kind of greatness that others would recognize as Odyssean in the same way that Athena as Mentes is telling Telemachus that she recognizes Odysseus in Telemachus's physical features. Now with all of that said, we finally get to hear what Telemachus has to say about his understanding of his father, Odysseus. The muse speaking through Homer says the following, and young Telemachus cautiously replied, I'll try my friend, to give you a frank answer. Mother has always told me I'm his son, it's true, but I'm not so certain. Who on his own has ever really known who gave him life? How grateful I would be had I been the son of a blessed man whom old age overtook in the midst of his possessions. But since you ask me, yes, they say that I'm his son. Okay, we really need to understand what has just been said there because this is an amazing acknowledgement that Telemachus has just made to Athena as Mentes and whom Telemachus doesn't even know. That's how reckless Telemachus has become in his experience of the absence of his father that he is telling a complete stranger who has just simply showed up at his door and said that he used to be friends with his father that he, Telemachus, might not even be Odysseus's son. And at that point, it's almost not even a usurpation to take over Ithaca. One simply only has to ask Telemachus publicly, are you Odysseus's son? And to express any uncertainty would flatly be to forfeit any possibility of becoming king. But let's formulate it this way. Our suspicions from the beginning that Telemachus might have zero memory of his father at all have just been confirmed. Moreover, it's also been confirmed that in the absence of a father, even and especially in the best case scenario, where you have a prince whose mother, Penelope, who we don't know anything about yet, but she at least was of some high caliber of virtue, 
that Odysseus, who excels all the other Greeks in cunning, chose to be his wife. Not even that situation is enough for a son to become a man in the absence of his father. And it's even worse than that, because Telemachus has taken his experience and writ it large across all humanity. In the absence of Odysseus, from the experience that Telemachus has had in that absence, he has enormously mistaken in drawing the conclusion that no man can or possibly has ever known, truly known, their father. And we can still even go further because it seems to be the case that Telemachus has writ this conclusion large not only across all of humanity, but he seems to have made it into a kind of cosmological principle, by which I mean he's wrapped the divine up into this conclusion. And apparently renouncing the entirety of his own life, he says he wished that he were born the son of a blessed man. So he believes that the gods themselves have not blessed Odysseus, and in fact possibly, or probably, cursed him. And the reason that this is so significant is that of all the things commonly known about Odysseus, it is known that Athena, of all the gods, favors him the most. And Telemachus has just told her, Athena, that she has abandoned Odysseus. Athena has come to Ithaca because of Odysseus. We have to let that sink in because Athena has just argued with her own father, Zeus, on behalf of Odysseus and Telemachus. The whole point of her coming to Ithaca is because of Odysseus and in particular because of Telemachus. Odysseus is exceedingly blessed of not simply the gods, but Athena herself, and she being the favored daughter of Zeus. And so by implication, Odysseus and Telemachus are exceedingly favored by Zeus himself. What we're seeing is another iteration of where the muse, speaking through Homer, thought it best to begin Odysseus' story at, which is to say Zeus's lament that man foolishly blames the gods for things that more properly are man's own fault. And to put this more provocatively, we could say that Athena is being shown the truth of Zeus's lament. So the full impact of this and its extreme urgency is that the absence of a father in a son's life has enormous consequences for the son's piety. And so to put this in the most common present-day terms, what that means is that the absence of a father in a son's life, even and especially in the best possible circumstances, places the status of the immortality of the son's soul in the afterlife in enormous peril and danger. But even if one is not a believer, or not a believer in anything that pertains to the immortality of the soul, the consequences are just as dire. Because fundamentally at issue here, what we're speaking of is the fortitude and the tenacity of the son to properly live the virtues in his own life that constitute the answer to the question, what is the good life? And so as concerned with proper decorum and honor as Telemachus has been upon seeing this stranger, Athena as Mentes, treated properly in his own home, I don't think that it's an overstatement at all to say that Telemachus is standing on the precipice of what we would otherwise think of as nihilism. 
a helpful analogy for this is to say that Telemachus is no different than the very talented and promising, and certainly politically ambitious, youths of Plato's Republic, Polemarchus, Adiamantus, Glaucon. He, Telemachus, is standing in the same relationship to the question of what is the good life and why bother being just that those youths are facing, and who Socrates has to spend ten entire books pulling them back from the very precipice of nihilism that's no different than what Telemachus is facing right now. And just as a matter of length, the fact that it takes Socrates, which is to say the philosopher, the educator, ten books to even hope to be a kind of lifeline that pulls those extremely talented youth back from the precipice of the razor's edge that is nihilism, places a magnifying glass with spotlight and all on how enormously disadvantaged a son is who either lacks a father or lacks a strong father to keep them from slipping into the abyss. And so we can formulate this very, very provocatively, but I think very helpfully, precisely because of the way in which it emphasizes the urgency, by stating it this way, the significance and the importance of any father in any of his son's lives is that he, and he by far more than anybody else, is the very lifeline that keeps any son from falling into the abyss of nihilism. Fatherhood itself is the fortress within which the son is defended and saved from the onslaught of nihilism that is always there. It's always afoot in one way or the other. And what I mean by that in particular is that this thing we understand today as nihilism is nothing new under the sun. It's absolutely there in Book One of Plato's Republic. It's absolutely here with Telemachus and Homer's Odyssey. And so to think that nihilism is just something that's to be associated with Nietzsche shouting from the rooftops that God is dead is to fundamentally misunderstand nihilism. And that too gets back to why I'm doing the other series, namely the series on Nietzsche's masterpiece, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and the other series on technology and nihilism. The way that I like to phrase it is this. Nietzsche himself never really gives any definitions of what nihilism is. He diagnoses modern man as suffering from nihilism, deeply suffering and dying in fact, but when you dig into the details, what you find is that Nietzsche is just providing various symptoms, showing the ways in which nihilism appears in our lives, and usually extremely subtly, ways in which we don't recognize it ourselves. And in his notebooks, he famously writes, who is this strange guest who knocks upon our door? He's talking about nihilism, of course. And today we certainly see it everywhere. But the invaluable importance of these great books like Homer's Odyssey, Plato's Republic, is that when we read them very, very carefully and meticulously, we recognize just how deep they truly are by the fact that they seem to be mirrors. They show us things about ourselves that we didn't realize. And so very, very many of the things that we consider as new today, our concepts of things, have always already been there, just waiting for us to discover them. The question of how we get out of nihilism today, and even if there's a way out, is absolutely definitive in Plato's Republic. And as we're seeing right here, at least at this point in the text, it's absolutely definitive of Homer's Odyssey.
the belief that whatever is latest is greatest and that old books don't really have us much to teach is not simply a belief. It's a mere belief, which is to say it's an unwarranted opinion. And in fact, and quite hilariously, I would add, we're going to find out in a few more lines that the rush to simply believe that whatever is the latest is the greatest is used in this text, and absolutely not by any hero. It's used by a dishonorable suitor as a justification for his freeloading off of another man with impunity. I mean, just let that sink in for a minute. The way that we would recognize that today, and particularly in the world of politics and philosophy, is that anyone who says something to the effect of you're on the wrong side of history and we're on the right side of history, or something like we have progressed since then, the way that's going to pop up in Homer's Odyssey, and quite explicitly, is by a dishonorable, freeloading suitor who's simply looking for the easy way out, the laziest way. And so that's what we have to look forward to among many, many other things that are just incredibly deep and just as importantly for so many people, so absolutely relevant for us today, which is to say, still very relevant for us today. We haven't learned the lessons of things that were handed down to us millennia ago. But in any case, I really hope that you've enjoyed this. And if you have, I really hope you take a look at my website, Athens Corner. There's so very much more there than I'm able to provide here on these various outlets for free.